Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. The object of the game is simple. It is to be in a position where you are the only one left with anything of value. Right? And in order to do that, you've got to literally extract wealth out of the people that you are playing with. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy. I'm a reporter for MarketWatch, filling in this week for Jeremy Olshin. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. If you can flash back to being about eight years old for a moment, think of the first board game that likely got you excited about, well, board games. Yes, we're talking Monopoly. But what do we misunderstand about the game? And can it help explain how money works today? This week, we dive into the history of the game, talk to Monopoly champion Brian Valentine, who you heard at the top of the show, and look at how this 100-plus-year-old game still has a lot to teach us. If you've always associated Monopoly with a game where you fight your siblings to the death to acquire Park Place and then bankrupt your entire family, well, you're missing the point of the original game. Elizabeth McGee designed the game as a teaching tool for progressive politics. She was against what she saw as landlord land grabbers, and she was an admirer of Henry George, who thought that instead of taxing income or financial assets, the government should create a universal land tax based on the usefulness, size, and location of the land. Then, after funding the government, the leftover money would be distributed to the people. Today, there's kind of this renaissance in the idea of gaming as educational tools, but she was really ahead of her time. Former Wall Street Journal reporter Mary Pallon wrote the book, The Monopolists, Obsession, Fury, and the Scandal Behind the World's Favorite Board Game. And she unearthed the lost history of the game creator, Lizzie McGee. Most of the big game companies in this country, Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley, really had education as a focus. And, you know, creating a game as a way of teaching people is really effective. Why just read about something when you can actually have people kind of role playing and interacting with it? For many years, the invention of Monopoly was attributed to Charles Darrow, the man who sold the popular game to Parker Brothers in 1935. But it turns out that Lizzie McGee already patented her nearly identical game, the Landlord Game, in 1904. When you look at the Lizzie McGee board and what we now know as Monopoly today, you do see a lot of similarities. She has the railroads. Obviously, in 1904, cars weren't such a big deal. You don't have free parking, but you have a public park because the Georgists were very interested in public land and how it should be taxed and used. The circular board design, the idea that you go around and around and around, as opposed to a game like you know, shoots and ladders where you go in a line, that was really revolutionary and really an interesting part of the game design. In her early version of the game, the instructions were to use miscellaneous household objects. And then ultimately that ends up being the tokens that we now know today. Monopoly caught on like wildfire. There were multiple versions of the game. Finance was one popular version. So was the so-called Quaker version, which gave us the Atlantic City board we now know with locales and streets such as Connecticut Avenue, St. James Place, and of course, the all-important boardwalk. 
when people made their own game boards at home, they localized them and they personalized them to reflect the communities that they live in. It was very much a folk game where if you were in Boston, you put the commons on there. If you were in New York, you'd put Broadway. People made these things at home. McGee invented the game as an instructional tool. Originally, there were two sets of rules you could play by, the monopolists or the anti-monopolists. You can guess which one won out in terms of popularity. I've always thought it was interesting that we gravitated towards the more evil version <laughs> of the game. A lot of Lizzie McGee's message got lost almost as soon as she started putting out this game. And to be fair, she had a lot of headwinds. I mean, in America, we love big money. We love winners. We love aggressive bosses. In McGee's anti-capitalist version of her landlord game, players had to cooperate instead of driving each other out of business. You're breaking things apart. So it's kind of trying to teach you this lesson that everybody can have an equal share. And that's actually probably more in line with reality, right? Like the pie of success is large and we can all have slices. It's not like my ability to become a millionaire means I have to bankrupt everyone in my social circle. It's a game people are constantly redesigning and making their own. You can get one for your alma mater, for your hometown. So in a weird way, we've come full circle, you know, a century later of still wanting to customize the game and, and make it our own. What grabs people about Monopoly is what grabs them about a lot of games, which is it's a fantasy. We get to act in ways that we can't in real life. And I'm the youngest in my family. And I remember as a kid playing Monopoly and being like, oh my gosh, I get to handle all the money. I get to buy property. I might even have a shot at beating my older sibling who's twice my size and I never can beat at anything. So it allows for a sense of role playing. And one of the things I love about playing Monopoly is it brings out other sides of people. You know, my grandmother, who's like a tiny church going 90 something, turns into an animal when she plays, you know, she just goes crazy. I do remember my first time playing Monopoly. I was probably about seven, eight years old, visiting family out in Long Island. And my cousin who was 10, 12 years older than me brings out this board game and says, have you ever played Monopoly? And I just, it was like a whole new world opened up. I just thought this was the coolest thing ever. I will never forget that day. And pretty soon after that, I'm sure my parents bought me a set because I just played the game obsessively as a kid. I don't remember the first time I played Monopoly, but I definitely played a lot of Monopoly when I was a kid. And I think for me, the kind of exciting part of the game was when you first start and somebody puts all that cash in your hands and you see those $500 bills. And, you know, I never saw a $500 bill before, but suddenly I had two of them. And I just remember that aspect of the game being exciting, you know, having being flush with cash. For champion Brian Valentine, Monopoly became more than a fantasy. His love of the game and skill took him all the way to Macau to represent the United States in the World Monopoly Championships. I am the second runner-up of the 2015 World Monopoly Championship. By the time 2015 rolled around, I had been playing Tournament Monopoly for about four years. So I had an idea of what it would take. I did my test, forgot about it. I was packing up to move to D.C. I get this email from Hasbro saying I've been selected as the representative. And I was like, you know, this they're pulling my leg. And it turns out that they, they were not pulling my leg. And then, you know, three weeks later, I was on a plane to Macau. Valentine plays using a strategy he says is unconventional. I tend to play a very footloose and fancy-free brand of Monopoly. I, I call it, you know, it's like shock and awe. I play a very cash-poor game of Monopoly. 
in order to do that, there's an option of leveraging the value in each of the properties you have for cash. You can mortgage properties and, and raise cash really quickly. You're essentially buying on credit. And that is not really a viable strategy for one's personal finances uh, because the bill is going to come due. But unlike real life, right, where you're trying to survive slash thrive, right, in Monopoly, you're, you're trying to wipe everyone out. Every game you play is a game of conquest. I mean, somebody's trying to win the game, but there's something about the game Monopoly because it involves money that makes it feel very different. And it almost is like it desensitizes you to the financial hardship of others. You're trying to wipe out other players by driving them into bankruptcy. You know, it's like, haha, you can't pay your electric bill or your water bill. It's, it's different in that way. It's the one board game that my kids would pull off the shelf and ask to play, and I would just have that sigh, you know, like, oh, here's three hours where we're going to sit at this table and, and play this never-ending game. Stephanie, you're sort of reminding me of my own childhood. When I played the game as a kid, you know, I remember just sort of begging my dad to play with me. And eventually he sort of worked out a deal where I could play his side as well as mine, which really, when you understand Monopoly, makes no sense. But he would do that uh, at probably about 30 or 45 minutes into a game. Monopoly is often the first way kids are introduced to ideas like money, banks, real estate, and rent. But some educators also use the game to help teach their students other ideas about our economy. I was a big fan of Monopoly as a kid. I learned a lot of my business skills from that game. Perry Clemens is an educational game designer. He was inspired to create his own version of Monopoly after participating in diversity and equity training as a third grade teacher. The information was important, he thought, but the delivery was lacking. As a teacher for over 13 years, I realized that gamification is so important of a way to teach people about topics that are usually hard to talk about. So I thought it would be nice if I could take the experience of racism, sexism in America and make it into a game which people can play and learn in a more engaging way. His game, Inequalityopoly, is similar to traditional Monopoly, but he alters the rules to make the point that people's opportunities in life are often tied to their identities. In the game, instead of passing go, collect your salary, you collect your salary, but based on your perceived identity. So there's the race pay gap and there's the ginger pay gap, making it so the Hispanic woman makes the least amount of money in the game. Monopoly is a good game to play because it teaches these skills that we need I think it's, my version is more for our time. But this right here is something that allows us to have these conversations that we've always needed to have. But now there's a demand to have these conversations. Using Monopoly to translate ideas about money and economics is not just for the classroom. After the break, we'll see how Monopoly can explain the core concepts of a new economic idea. Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Each week, we bring you stock market outlooks, macroeconomic updates, and investment strategies that can help you succeed. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience about how they navigate uncertain markets. Prepare to be engaged, enlightened, and entertained by listening to the Capital Ideas podcast today.
Welcome back to the Best New Ideas in Money. Before the break, Mary Pallon told us about the real history of Monopoly. And that reminded me that I actually used the board game to explain how a currency like the U.S. dollar works in my book on modern monetary theory. The interesting thing about the game is that it actually has some realistic dimension that resembles what MMT is describing. I asked my friend and colleague Fadl Kaboob to help me explain some of the ideas we often talk about in MMT through the lens of Monopoly. He's an associate professor of economics at Denison University and president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. What matters is the real resources, not the scarcity of money. So money is no object in a sense in the game, but the real resources, the, the real estate properties and the physical properties, those are scarce and you can run out of those items. But the, the game itself describes that, you know, you have a certain amount of money in the bank, it's distributed to the players. You can't really operate in the system until the money is distributed. The game also describes that when you run out of money, you can just get any kind of paper and make some more to keep playing the game. That's a key point. Until the money is injected into the game, the players can't even start playing. They can't spend and they can't be taxed. MMT has been saying this for years now, that the real constraint on the economy is not the shortage of money. We have a sovereign government that can issue money into existence. We have a banking system that can expand credit under certain rules and regulations to serve the public purpose. If we know how to manage and regulate the issuance of credit to actually serve the public purpose in non-speculative ways. And what matters in terms of our quality of life and our collective prosperity is finding the real resources to produce things in the most effective way to deliver for the public purpose. In MMT, managing where and how we spend the money is more important than the total amount of money spent. One of the lessons we learned from the game of Monopoly is not to end the system with collapse, with, with massive concentration and wealth and, and power, uh, because it literally ends the game. Right? then there's there's no fun in, in ending the game, so to speak, other, unless you're a parent and you really want the game to end <laughs> somehow. Ending the game of Monopoly with one winner, essentially accumulating all the wealth and all the property and everybody else going bankrupt, is the equivalent of us collectively in, in the real world and the economy rushing towards the cliff <laughs> with this uh, extreme inequality situation. And we've seen it historically. I mean, one of the factors that led to the Great Depression, the Great Crash, was massive increase in inequality. The rubber barons and the abusive power that they had and the speculative behavior. A hundred years later, we're sort of moving in that same direction. I mean, the number of billionaires that we've created during the pandemic, let alone pre-pandemic, and the rise in the level of inequality is just unsustainable uh, economically, socially, politically, ecologically. Of course, monopoly isn't the perfect way to explain our economy or the ideas behind MMT. You can't get the kind of inflation that would happen in a real economy. Also in the game, no one has a job. No one works and no one's ever unemployed. The only income in Monopoly is passive income from rent and passing go. There are no workers and no capitalists, and the only currency is Monopoly money. There are no exchange rates and no foreign trade. 
but it does do a good job of illustrating how a sovereign currency works and why the issuer can never run out of money. Not everyone is a fan of Monopoly as a teaching tool, and some aren't even fans of the game itself. There are two things I don't like about Monopoly. One is from a gameplay experience standpoint, and the other is from an accurate simulation standpoint. Edward Castronova is a professor at Indiana University's Media School. He studies the intersection of games and technology with society. So as a gameplay experience, I, I would characterize Monopoly as random permadeath. So permadeath in game design refers to a player, when they're defeated, they're out of the game for good. And that this permadeath comes about randomly is especially frustrating. You don't make strategic choices about where to go on a Monopoly board. If you roll wrong and you end up on boardwalk with your opponent having a hotel there, you know, you're, you're finished. Random permadeath is kind of a cheap way to put tension into a game, and it results in lots of anger. How many Monopoly games end with people reaching across the board and shaking one another's hands? <laughs> they end with people throwing the board up in the air. And, you know, that happened to us all the time when we were kids. Castronova, who has a PhD in economics, doesn't think Monopoly does a good job of mirroring our economy. If you look out at the economy that we actually have, it doesn't look like the economy that happens in the game Monopoly, right? If Monopoly was a true simulation, there would be one company in the whole world. Because the way Monopoly works is there's, let's say, four companies that start on an even footing, and one of them ends up destroying all the others. And that's not what the economy looks like. He says, in our actual economy, companies are not able to simply destroy one another until there's only one left. They reach what we would call an efficient scale. And it depends on the industry, but for the vast majority of industries, the efficient scale of a company is smaller than the entire market. That's certainly the case in real estate. The people who designed Monopoly wanted to demonstrate how the economy was in real estate was just tilted towards the rich and famous and that the powerful would take over everything. That was their message. But when I look at commercial real estate companies, I, I don't see one company that destroys all the others. Even in a small town like the one I live in, there are many different companies and they compete. Surviving while competing is 99% of the economy. While some are skeptical of Monopoly's educational potential, International champion Brian Valentine remains a true believer. He likes that Monopoly can teach students about money and also that it can teach us about each other. There is a certain level of cooperation that has to take place. And what separates some folks from others is the way they go about it. You find out so much about people by sitting at the table with them. You're finding out how people respond to adversity. You're finding out how people handle the ups and the downs. You're finding out how people interact with one another. You know, you find out about people's level of competitiveness. There's so many different things that you can learn about a person. Whether you love the game or hate it, maybe the key to the success and longevity of Monopoly is how adaptable it is to whatever purpose we want to put it to. That could be early 20th century progressive politics, or MMT, or inequality, or just a way to spend a family game night, whether you get to put a hotel on boardwalk or not.
Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like the show, please leave us a review. As you probably know, it's the best way for other listeners to discover us. If you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line or send us a voicemail at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Mary Pullon, Brian Valentine, Perry Clemens, Fadl Kaboob, and Edward Castronova. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch, produced by Best Case Studios. Suzanne Myers is our producer, and our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz Lockard. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Katie Ferguson. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.